you've got to make a bunch of errors. I made them, sometimes spectacularly, but never fatally. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. One of our great expatriate economists is Justin Wolfers. I've known Justin since primary school, and he and I attended the same high school. He went on to get the Medal in Economics at the University of Sydney, uh, to work at the Reserve Bank, uh, and then headed off to Harvard to do his economics degree where he finished top of the class, and more importantly, met the love of his life, Betsy Stevenson. Uh, They have two children, Matilda and Oliver. Uh, Justin is somebody who uh, does terrific research but also enjoys propagating it. He's teaching introductory economics at the University of Michigan uh, and working on an introductory textbook. Uh, He's also somebody who has a great ability to see the bright side in things. Uh, My Bucks party was at Miami Beach and uh, after a few drinks we decided it would be a great idea to skinny dip on Miami Beach. When we returned, we realised that most of the wallets had disappeared. Justin's approach was to smile, think about cancelling his credit cards and then make useful sociological observations on how the police station dealt with us. For Justin, economics is everywhere. But we're not here tonight to talk about Justin's economics research, we're here to talk about the good life. So Justin, thanks for appearing on the podcast. Mate, it's, uh, it's always fun to chat. How do you think your childhood shaped your views on economics? Uh, I mean, ours is the science of scarcity. Did uh, growing up in a household of six kids uh, make you aware of uh, scarcity and trade-offs? I guess it does. Um... You know, so, yes, there's scarcity. Mum puts a cake on the table, six kids. You move fast or you don't get much type of ice cream. My brother would always take three or four scoops. He knows which brother it is. Um, Fewer scoops for the rest of us. Still true, he's in his 40s. Um, Then again, you know, you and I grew up in a very similar milieu and there's not a lot of scarcity in another respect, you know, parents who believe in education... Um, was always taught that there was one part of my life where there was to be no scarcity if I needed a book or something like that, uh, that would occur. So there's a another sense of the idyllic. Um, and uh, well, I don't know how quickly you want to get how, how deep, but, um, you know, and then, you know, my parents got divorced when I was at a uh, pivot, you know, pivotal age in my teens. I don't know what that taught me about economics, or I should say, for a long time, I didn't know what that taught me about economics. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't sue me economic, does it? Um, but it actually turned out to be a big part of the economic research that Betsy and I have done, um, trying to understand 
in a small sense, that episode of my life, um, in a larger sense, our economic forces shape everyday life. Do you find it more satisfying to work on questions that have some personal resonance? Yes. Um, you know, there's stuff you do that other people really like. You know, you're the bright, young, shiny thing. And there's stuff that you do that you feel addresses an issue you care a lot about. Um, and so when people ask me what I'm proud of, it's it's of that. And maybe the advance was smaller than, other, than in other areas. Mm. Um, but, you know, um, taking steps to understand something that affects so many in such an important way... You know, I was the scared 15-year-old kid not knowing which way forward. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's whether I want to prevent that or help that kid understand or provide public policies that, you know, provide a, a roadmap towards public policies that that um, make that work a little better. It's, it has a deep emotional resonance. Um, and I guess the guess or hope is I'm not just, you know, staring into my own backyard that it is actually something that matters. It's always hard to know, though, mate. Economics is a very uh, competitive discipline, and one of the things yeah. that uh, has always struck me about you is you seem to uh, find the things to enjoy in, in an atmosphere in which I think many other people feel enormously stressed. So it's a privilege to be an academic, but uh, particularly in the US system, you've got seven years to prove yourself uh, or you're, you're out of the department uh, and there's a sense that uh, because the benchmark for quality is so clear, uh, if you're not performing, you really, you really know it. How did you find you kind of navigated those stresses and, and made sure you really enjoyed economics? Well, you'll laugh at this. Uh, we went through graduate school together. A lot of people find graduate school very difficult, competitive. I thought it was a blast. You know, you go to the other side of the world. Yeah, me too. People will pay, right, but none of our classmates did. <laughs> they described it as the most stressful time in their lives. But, you know, you get paid to go to the other side of the world and learn about really interesting things from the greatest minds in the world. I thought it was brilliant. Now, I didn't go over there trying to do a good job. I realised, you know, you walk in, there's the Israeli mathematicians competing with the Russian mathematicians. Australian economists don't feel like they stand much of a chance. Um, so it, I didn't have a competitive approach. I was, you know, they'll tell me if I'm any good at this. I'm not going to prove it. Um, and then, you know, through the career path, look, you're, you're right. It's what an enormous privilege that we're allowed to just think about and spend our time on the things that we think is, are important. Um, you know, you can, you can answer your social conscience yet still be home for your kids' soccer practice. Um, and you can, if you get it right, and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, you can have an impact. Um, and in between, you're thinking about what's going to be interesting. How interesting is, is how would I find out? And you're going on voyages of discovery. Um, it's, it's an immense privilege. Hard not to enjoy it, mate. Did you have mentors who you particularly looked up to as to how to how to be a social scientist? Many. Um, the thing about finding yourself in a good environment is you can find yourself in a place where there are so many people, you know, it, it, it's just like for all of us at, at our workplaces, you can get to work and you can find workplace politics. You can also find magnificent people doing magnificent things. Mm. 
Hmm. I'm sure that's true of every office building downtown, as true as it was studying my PhD at Harvard. So, you know, found myself the first day of graduate school, I was in the computer lab, and another graduate student said, oh, you guys are new, and introduced me to Stefano Delavigna. Stefano and I have been friends now for 20 years. Um, you know, and I was in my first class and I said a bunch of stupid and obnoxious things to, to Greg Mankiw, who, you know, I'm a, a Democrat, left-wing economist. Greg was the chief economist for, um, for George W. Bush. Um, I would regard Greg as a friend. We enjoy a glass of wine. We talk about our kids. Um, you know, I, you and I both got to work with Sandy Jenks. Uh, Sandy's one of the greatest social scientists. And I say social scientists, not sociologists, not economists, social mm. scientists. Um, we both worked with Larry Katz. Uh, what an intellect. But not just what an intellect, right? Like in the service of something. Um, and it's, you know, that's the, the thing you can often lose for folks who are in yours and my line of work, highly technical, complicated, competitive. You can lose sight of the fact that, you know, it's not a game, it's about something bigger than us. And, um, you know, the giants of the field remind you of that. And they remind you every time. Um, I got to work with Olivier Blanchard. Olivier's a dear friend. Olivier still thinks that my son Oliver was named for him. There's a missing eye there and there's not a French accent. <laughs> um, but Don't subliminally, <laughs> subliminally maybe Olivier's right. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, I'm sure you feel the same way, like, what a privilege. Yeah, but also that sense of um, uh, balance and contribution. So, uh, you know, as you were talking through, I was thinking about the way in which Sandy Jenks had his routines for uh, where he would go, go on holidays and making sure that he had that, that balance of, uh, of, of in, you know, making sure he's in a nice physical environment. And Larry Katz's amazing accessibility to the, to the US media despite the fact that he seemed to be advising everyone and editing every single paper that, uh, that, that came through. So Sandy's beach house is up the street from our beach house. Uh, so in fact, that beautiful physical environment Sandy and Jenny go off to enjoy over the summer, we're just up the road and we try and catch up with them. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, I guess this is, when you said you wanted to talk about the good life, I was like, what would an economist have to talk about? Um, but you're right, you watch, you watch and you learn from these folks in a sense of purpose. Hmm. Um, and, you know, if you're doing something you believe in, you can wake up and do it every day and you can do it with passion. Uh, and it should be said, speaking of beach houses, that we're uh, speaking <laughs> at, a, at a place that you're uh, renting or airbnb on uh, Balmoral Beach at the, at the moment, uh, which is uh, uh, not an unpleasant part of the world. Uh, how do you work out what to work on? Uh, I mean, you're, the range of things you've, you've worked on is extraordinarily broad. You've, you've done papers on uh, uh, election betting, uh, macro derivatives, racism in the NBA, happiness, divorce, the death penalty. Uh, you're not known as a methodological person, uh, which might otherwise be the excuse for, uh, for ranging across so many topics. Uh, you must have considered a hundred other things to work on and discarded them. So how did you end up with the bundle of things that you've chosen to, to, to write about? Well, first of all, you're being unusually, or unduly, not unusually. I mean unduly, I don't mean unusually. You're being unduly modest, which is you've been a co-author on about a third or a quarter of those things. And um, uh, you've worked, we've worked on happiness together. 
we've worked on prediction markets together. Um, we've worked on some labor stuff. I think um, well, certainly we've talked a lot about it. So um, in your breadth is uh, is is enormous because you not only do all that, you do politics. Um, it's a tough living. Um, you know, I'd like to give you the answer that you do what's important. If I've been guilty of something, it's not being true to that. Um, sometimes you do what's interesting. Sometimes you chase something tenaciously because that's you're a little bit like a greyhound. Um, you know, you see the hare race past and you can't help it. You're running full pelt at it. And you haven't had a thought, do I actually feel like eating a rabbit right now? Mm. Um, so, you know, and sometimes what you're doing is directly on the topic you care about, like, say, the family. And sometimes it's about finding a way to tell a story. Um, so, you know, I worked on you know, racism in the NBA. Now, if you asked me about the most socially pressing topics in the world, whether the seven, 70 multi-millionaires who play basketball in the United States, whether some of, them, some of them should be earning a bit more and some of them a bit less, doesn't seem so important in the broad scheme of things. Um, but it's a way of telling stories and getting people to understand the impact of race in other areas. Um, so um, Bob Schiller recently gave the presidential address to the American Economic Association. Uh, Bob said out loud what we always keep secret, um, that narrative matters. In social science, we pretend it doesn't. You run the numbers, you come up with the facts. But we never know everything about the whole world. Mm. So what we're always doing is we're telling stories to fill in the gaps. And so sometimes there's big gaps that can be filled in with interesting stories. And you can fill in a bigger gap with a story that bridges a big gap than you can with you know, a string of papers that will fill in little things we don't know. So maybe that's some of it. Um, sometimes you're blessed with great co-authors. Sometimes you're blessed with short deadlines. Um, uh, you know, you, we have a responsibility. There's a public trust given to academics and public intellectuals. People will pay our salary if we do something useful in return. And we should think hard about that. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't do such a good job. What are you proudest of? Which of, which of the papers you've done? Uh, so what economics work am I proudest of? Yeah. Um, I, I do think it's the work on family. Um, I can look you in the eye, I can look myself in the eye, and say it's an important topic and we had something to contribute. Um, there are things I've done that I think have had a bigger impact on the profession, but what we're doing is not about small debates in ivory towers. Um, you know, having said that I'm proudest of it, maybe I should do more of it. Um, you know, I, I am proud, you know, the thing you don't, as an academic, and your listeners may not know this, as an academic you don't get much chops for doing stuff in the public eye. So my high school economics teacher is really proud of me every time he reads my name in the paper, but my colleagues aren't. <laughs> um, but actually I think a very important role we play, or can play, is in interpreting for the general public. It's great that my colleagues in the Ivory Tower are doing wonderful and brilliant things, but mm. unless it can be brought into a language that that mere politicians, Andrew, a, a member of the House, uh, could understand, it's hard to see how it gets translated into anything that matters. And, um, you know, so that's something I do a lot of. Um, and... Sometimes I get it right, and it's a beautiful, it's a great feeling. 
Um, I'm sure you you enjoyed that feeling. Um, and no one will ever say that's important, but you know there are more people that read the New York Times than the Quarterly Journal of Economics. I find that hard to believe. Yes, we'll go we'll go and run the numbers yes. at some point. Yes. Um, Ed Glazer apparently has a little speech he gives to uh, students at the end of his undergrad, on the last last day of his undergrad course, where he says that uh, uh, most of them will place too much emphasis on money and too little emphasis on time and urges them to, to make decisions that uh, take that into account. Uh, how have you found that dynamic in, in your life? Uh, so first of all, I want to point to the irony of a Chicago-trained economist who believes that most agents make rational decisions in every part of their lives, saying to a room full of very smart Harvard undergraduates <laughs> that the most important decisions they'll make with their lives, how to spend their time, they'll screw up, um, which shows that uh, it is a better social scientist than his upbringing, um, that we're all imperfect and maybe we can all learn something. That was Justin's way of saying, listeners, that he agrees with the advice, but uh, would just like to have a go at the institutions. <laughs> I forgot that sometimes we talk in code. I'm sorry. Um, no, it's... Look, I, I actually think the advice is spot on. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you can think about what's... So, often I find that introductory economic students, I think people generally want to ask, we think, you know, if you say economics is a study of scarce resources. By the way, that was your definition, not mine. Um... Mine is economics is what economists do. Um, now ask me what economists Spoken do. Spoken like a true economic imperialist. Um, uh, so um, most people you know, say, well, what's scarce? And they're like, money. Well, sure, money's scarce, but it's not the only scarcity. So time, of course, you can use time to produce money. So it's just, if you think money is scarce, then obviously you think time is scarce. And I say, well, I can't use my time to produce money. I already have one job and I can't have two jobs. But you could spend more time on your tax return. You could drive an Uber. Um, you could spend more time cooking rather than eating out. There are many ways in which you can turn time into money. So you think money is scarce, time certainly is. Of course, you can produce a lot more things with time than you can with money. Um, you can produce moments of joy with your children. Um, you can, uh, well, uh, but there are other things that are scarce as well, right? Um, the number of calories you eat per day. Uh, of course, we've come from a time when we're worried about not getting enough. But today, the biggest constraint is too many. Hmm. So one donut means, you know, two less smoothies. That's a form of scarcity. So you've got to manage that as well. So um, I, I think that people spend a lot of time thinking about the money side of it. And they spend a lot less thinking about the other forms of scarcity. Attention willpower these are other things that are scarce and you want to think about how best you can dial them out to 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 use your term live the good life are there particular ways in which you've tackled that in your own, in your own life are there particular life hacks that uh, you and betsy have uh, settled upon um i think one is to internalize what you said which is the cost of time is high realize that and and plan accordingly um this can lead you to some very unusual and uncomfortable solutions. So one of the things I like to do, you like to do, is I like to run marathons. Um, now, you're more efficient than I am. You can get it done in three hours, and it takes me four. So that means a marathon is 33% more percent more expensive for me than it is for you. It's actually much worse than that, right? Which is when you're thinking of training for one of these things, you've got to go for a long run every Sunday. That'll be three hours. You've got to go for a few other runs during the week. 
four hours, five hours, if I think about what my hourly consulting rate is, then I'm spending thousands of dollars a year on this pointless pursuit. And the hard math of that makes it sound like running marathons is the most expensive and stupid thing I've ever done. But as much as it's important to think about the cost, you've got to think about the benefits, right? It's also the highest impact thing I do in terms of creating mental health, joy. Hmm. It's like a silent meditation. Um, and so if you only think about the cost side, you'll get this wrong. You've got to think about the benefits side as well, which is to produce that incredible feeling of calm that you get after a good three-hour run. There's actually, you know, it would cost me much more than three hours to do it any other way. Right. So it's a very efficient way forward. Uh, and you meditate as well, don't you? you? Have a daily meditation practice? Not daily, um, but whenever I get cranky, <laughs> you, know, you feel the blood boil a little bit. And you're like, well, either I have to yell at someone here because they're being a butthead, or um, uh, or maybe the problem's me. Um, go off. I'm not particularly good at it. Um, I started a little meditation practice with my daughter until the seven. Hmm. Um, there's these wonderful iPhone apps. In fact, one of them's Australian. Um, it's actually really a nice connecting hmm. thing you do with a kid. Only 10 minutes because that's her attention span. Is this Headspace you use? Or? Uh, it's not Headspace. I'll figure it out for you. And uh, if I remember, I'll, I'll tell you. Smiling Mind. Smiling it's an Australian, Mind. It's an Australian one, and they're trying to spread it through the Australian schools. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you have other interesting choices that you and Betsy have uh, have made in order to Interesting. Maximize. That is a, a wonderfully loaded term. Well, uh, one of the things that people often do when they're fortunate and they have a, a good amount of resources is to go and buy lots of stuff, yeah. uh, to go and sort of buy really expensive cars and really expensive boats and that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, you and Betsy don't do that. You tend to, well, you spend more on household services than uh, uh, any friend I have. Uh, yes. You're the only people I know who've employed a personal assistant, uh, a, a driver when you were uh, having, having a long daily commute to a university. Um, and you're certainly the only person I've ever known who, when a friend asked you for help in uh, moving house, uh, said, uh, I'll give you some money to pay a removalist instead. Uh, all of this seems to suggest you've thought pretty hard about that time money trade-off and about what you want to spend your time on. Yeah, so, you know, we... Um let me say it another way. So when we were at Princeton, I was living in Philadelphia. It's an hour away from Princeton, an hour each way. Driving to me is one of the most mind-numbingly painful things in the world. I realize other people find it meditative. I don't understand, but I understand. But that, that happens. So um, one way of saying it is I didn't drive to Princeton. I would pay someone to drive to Princeton. Another way is to say I drove to Princeton every day. Here's how I would drive. I'd get in the back of a car and I'd type words into a computer for 20 minutes. And that would be a column that would pay me enough money that someone would send me a check and I'd send half of that check to someone else who was sitting in the front seat and they would move the steering wheel. And so it would take me 20 minutes to drive to Princeton. <laughs> uh, and it's just I drove by typing. Um, and then by doing it that way, I cut my commute time down from an hour to 20 minutes and that gave me another 40 minutes each day to type other things for other reasons. Um, so it really is thinking about what's the most efficient way to produce things. And often the most efficient way to produce things is for me to type and have that someone else cut a check that gets to someone else who does the thing that gets done. 
Um, I used to tease my nanny that she would write columns for the New York Times, right? Because she would come to work and she would spend an hour helping my kids on something really important. And I would type for that hour. And during that hour she did that, she wrote a New York Times column. Um, and so I don't know if that's just obnoxious or if that was a way of me making sense of my decisions or a way of her uh, finding meaning in hers. Um, but, you know, it's this is just a principle of comparative advantage, the deep economic principle, which is you try and make sure that tasks are done by the person who can do so at the lowest opportunity cost. Um, and again, we all have ways of turning time into money. We don't always confront them or think about them. Um, so it is true, um, my biggest household expenses, you could say, is help. But again, it's not, right? Like, what I do is I just drive to Princeton three times faster than everyone else. <laughs> and I do that by typing. So it's not an expense. It's actually a saving. If you can move it into that frame, it feels very different. Are there things that you've done in the parenting space uh, in order to make make time for Matilda and Oliver? Oh, so, I mean, there's things I've done in every other part of my life that's not parenting to create the time to be with Matilda and Oliver. That's the easy one, right? Like, um, if Tell I can... Um, uh, so I... Um, it's funny, actually, when we hired our nanny, I, I sat down and I talked to her and I said, you know, there are two things I like, I like doing. I like doing economics and I like hanging out with my kids. So I'm going to try and plan my life so those are the two things I do. Fortunately, I get paid for one of those two things. And so if I can do more of that first thing, economics, I can hopefully type my way to Princeton or the equivalent and create uh, the time, right? I'm not going to be laundering my shirts. I send them out. Uh, that creates the time that I can spend with my kids. So creating a space for family life is just another one of those think hard about time, not just about money. Um, you feel like you're saving money when you launder your own shirts. But you you know, you put eight shirts in the wash and then you iron them. Do you still iron your own, Andrew? I have uh, non-ironed shirts at the moment. So. See, that doesn't even show. It's a shame your listeners won't know that. Your shirt looks really good. <laughs> um, maybe I need to get shirt advice from you there but that's the point right so you found a way of saving that time you get to spend more of that time with your kids um or on the things you love or on the things that give you you know meaning but my guess is that this gave you a little bit of visceral discomfort at first as somebody who grew up in a very very uh, modest modest household where you were sharing sharing rooms with your siblings uh you're uh, uh, parents, parents separated in teenage years. Uh, it wasn't as though there was plenty of help in that household. Um, so, how, did did you did you wrestle with with that that at all? This is why you never do interviews with old family friends. <laughs> Not all of these things are widely known, um, but you know you're right. Um, no, but this is true for all. Uh, yes, right. So when I hang out with my economist friends, oh, the principle of comparative advantage. David mm. Ricardo taught me that. This is obvious. Ed Glazer would be proud of me. Um, and some people think it's not only weird but obscene or even exploitative mm. to have someone mm. drive you to work. Right. Let's talk about that. Um, and you know, at the moment, I actually walk to work. I'm now living close to work, but um, 
you know, what a what a terribly unmiddle class thing. And what what are your kids learning from that? Um, I don't really have a good answer for that outside of the language of economics. Um, we've all gone one way here, Andrew. What's your answer to this? Well, when uh, uh, when I was a kid, we lived in Indonesia, and uh, I remember my right. parents saying when they first got there, um, as you know, egalitarians who felt very uncomfortable uh, with uh, with having servants, their first instinct was to fire the servants in the household in Jakarta. Uh, and thankfully, uh, one of their neighbours came to them first and said, "Do you realise uh, you might feel better not to have help in the house?" but these people will not have jobs. Uh, the labour market right now in, in Jakarta in 1977 uh, is not good. Um, so these people will, will go to bed hungry uh, in a week's time uh, if, you, if you fire them. So their, their approach was just we treat these people with full decency, they're part of our household, yeah. we don't have any silly or nasty, nasty rules, we ask them about their families and to the greatest extent you know, we try and make sure that, that we're behaving ethically through this. Um, but even at the end, I think they, they were glad to get home to Australia and, and not, to have that, not to have that. So it's, it was interesting for them how their economic sides and their uh, uh, morality came up against them. That's a great way of telling the story and I think points to sort of the underlying thing, which is can you respect the nobility of work? Hmm. Hmm. Um, if you think that you're asking people to do things that are in some sense noble, um, then, you know, making that exchange creates gains from trade, which is economist code. Um, but, you know, everyone's better off at the end of the day. And um, the woman who drove me to Princeton every day, she was an artist. She used the money we gave her that gave her the freedom to create art. That was very important to her. I could have not paid her and she would have to drive a taxi instead. She'd have to drive it twice as long. Uh, we paid a reasonable wage. Um, and she'd create half as much art. Um, so there is a, a nobility in all of that. Um, that's not calling me noble. I'm saying the work she was doing yeah. was meaningful and useful. And it may sound self-indulgent to say it's meaningful and useful because it creates the space for me to spend time with my kids. But if we all do that, if I create the space for you to spend time with your kids and you create the space for me to spend time with my kids, we're both better off. And so are our kids. Um, it's very hard. So a lot of this is about how you frame things. Um, do you make sure to understand the broad set of winners as well as the set of losers from what you're doing? And, you know, your parents in Indonesia needed to understand that when they were hiring someone, they were creating people whose lives were enriched, that there were gains in their lives, right? They would have enough money that, you know, their kids would have books at school. Mm -hmm. Pretty important. How else does economics shape how you, uh, how you parent? Do you, are you trying to teach some economics to, uh, to, to the kids? <laughs> We do not consciously teach our kids any economics um, and what's hilarious, and I wonder if it plays out in your household, is by pure osmosis, my kids turn out to be splendid economists. Um, <laughs> Matilda was uh, telling me the other day she wanted to be an artist. I'm like, all right, Matilda, that's fine. She, she, it was actually back when she was six. I mean, it was very hard for me as an economist to say that's fine. Um, 
But if that is her passion, it is fine. And then she said, well, I'm not sure, Dad. If I set the price really high, I won't sell many works of art. But if I cut the price, I'll sell a lot more and they'll have a lot more income. So she discovered that the demand curve sloped down without actually ever having sold any of her art. <laughs> and that pricing decisions are complicated and it's all about elasticity. Um, and that was just an intuition that Matilda had. Um, there's a deep paradox in economics it's called the diamond water paradox. And it goes as follows. Um, diamonds are basically useless. Like, they're pretty, right? And you can use them in industrial machinery. If you that. But they're pretty, but, like, it's a rock, right? Water is the most important thing in the world. If there weren't water, you'd die. So valuable. So why are diamonds expensive and water cheap? Prices have nothing to do with value. This puzzled generations of economists. It's only a couple of hundred years ago we figured this out. Matilda, quick as you like, says, well, because diamonds are scarce. There's not many of them. I was kind of impressed by that. Uh, so she was uh, Marshallian before Marshall. Mm. Well, actually a couple of hundred years after Marshall. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, do, I, do I want my kids to have economic intuitions? Yes. I believe deeply that my field has useful intuitions that can help you live a better and richer life. So do other fields. But mine certainly does. And that's why I want to teach 18-year-olds at the University of Michigan and similar kids in first-year economics classes around the world how to make better decisions. Do I self-consciously want my kids to be more of an economist than that? No, that's up to them. Hmm. But for you and Betsy, economics is pretty important to how you make a whole lot of decisions, right? I mean, there's your steady evolution away from meat uh, seems to be uh, easily explicable in, in economic terms, for example. That one might be ethics, um, or it might just be a puzzle. Um, I gave up eating meat and I forget why. Um, uh, but one answer was I, you know, I... So you could call it economics, but, you know, I read a book by Jonathan Safran Fur, uh, which talked about sort of factory farming and the like. And, you know, I sound like a 17-year-old who just read, you know, something. And, and, I, and I was like, oh, if you care to even a speck for the well-being of non-humans, then the magnitude of the atrocity that we commit eating chicken, hmm. factory farm chicken, is so large, it's unconscionable. Um, now, you can combine that with the fact that I li already lived with a pre-existing vegetarian, so the cost of adopting it was low, so that's the sense in which there's economics. But there's economics in everything, right? The only difference is I know how to use the language of economics to describe it. Other people are making fundamentally economic decisions. They're thinking about trade-offs, what's best for them, what they're good at. Um, they're thinking about one more, they're thinking at the margin. So they're always doing this, they just don't have the language to describe it. Um, so, you know... Yes, I make decisions like an economist, but the answer is economists are, desc are describing real people, good economics is, so therefore we're all doing it. Um, and the only question is how aware of it we are and whether we follow the implications through as far as we should. So let me get, get you on a couple of topics which I'm uh, uh, curious about, which I sort of had na natural flow through. Um, you once told me your view that uh, if you're networking, Basically, that I think it's that you regard networking as essentially a, a waste of time, professional networking. 
How, how do you how do you think about that? Boy, um, I'm surprised I gave it any thought at all. Um, there's well, people devote a huge amount of time to networking, right? To right. putting themselves in situations they wouldn't otherwise be in because they feel that they will expand their circle of professionally effective contacts. And I seem to remember you yeah. essentially arguing that that's a bad use of time, which debunks a whole lot of book airport bestsellers. Well, I don't know who's right. Um, I don't even know if I believe what I believe. Um, there's no question that socially there exist bonds of reciprocity and they're really important. Right? You and I are talking right now because I've known you for 20 years. Two-thirds of people who call me and say, be on my podcast, I don't respond to. So there are deep bonds of reciprocity. You are, I'm going to come and visit you tomorrow and you will take me into your home because there are bonds of reciprocity. Um, they're really important. So I think, but those bonds of reciprocity are deep. Right, like you know, if you called me tomorrow and said there'd been a death in the family, we'd come down and take care of the kids. You know, that's because I'm currently in Australia. But I'd like to think they're deep. I, I think you'd, I hope you'd like to think the same. Um, you know, I guess in Australia we'd call that mateship. So those are important, and it's also in an economist language, it's an insurance network, right? Like if something goes wrong, I know you'd come and help me out. And I think that goes both ways. Um, if I met you at a conference and thrust my business card under your nose and said I'm someone who's useful to know, those bonds of reciprocity aren't that deep. Um, now, you know, there is, there's two things that networks are. So I've talked about the bonds of reciprocity. The other is their information. So I guess the standard view of networks would be close to information, which is if you thrust my, your business card under my nose... And I found myself two weeks later and someone said, oh, Justin, do you know any parliamentarians? I'd be like, oh, there's this bloke I met at a conference, I got his business card. Yes, I know the email address of one parliamentarian. And so maybe networking can be helpful for information. Um, and so I guess the question is, you know, are people trying to use networks for something as simple as information or for something deeper like trust? Hmm. Right, because in fact, the more likely thing is, I say, oh, do you know any carpenters who are reliable? Now, if a carpenter had thrust his business card under your nose at parent-teacher night last week, you don't know anything about whether he's reliable or not. There's no information there, in which case you wouldn't recommend him. Um, so maybe, you need, maybe the information problems we have in society are a little bit deeper than whose name is on what business card. It's something about trust reciprocity, knowledge, something a little deeper. So I guess I'm trying to understand, you know, that's a simple, it's, it's, a, it's an attempt to make sense of what you allege I said <laughs> some number of years ago. But you're somebody who I think of as never saying yes to attend an event because of who you'll meet. Uh, almost invariably you're interested in going along to things because you'll you'll learn stuff, right? Are they different? I mean, whether you learn stuff depends on who's there. Uh, okay. Being interested not in the But it's status, not to right. not in the status and in the in in the in the sort of I, I think of you as somebody who takes the mentality that the ideas should come first, that the the links will come, the, the links will flow later. 
Well, that's very flattering. I hope that's true. <laughs> when do you write? In the morning. Um, very early? Do you try and do it before the kids get up? In my best writing days, I get up at five and just write straight through and by noon I'm spent. And um, when I'm being more realistic about my life, I get up at seven, try and bang a little bit out and squeeze, you know, squeeze a few more hours out after that. Um, so I'm very protective of my mornings. Um, I do things like take calls and so on during a commute, pure dead time. Do all my meetings in the afternoon. Um, turns out actually, tell you two things I learned about writing. One, I write much better standing up than sitting down. It's very weird. Do you have a standing desk? Yes. You must. To it it took me a like while to get um, uh, to be able to write standing up, but I can do it now. So the thing is, when you're sitting down, surfing the internet and wasting time seems totally natural. You feel like an idiot surfing the web for an hour and a half when you're standing up. You're like, why am I standing up to do this? And so somehow it keeps me on task. And the other thing I've learned, um, if I open a Microsoft Word document to write, you can feel the weight of the blank page. Um, when I open a Google Doc or an email, but most of my New York Times columns I write as an email to my editors. Um, purely psychological, um, feels temporary, feels unimportant. I don't feel like I have to get everything right. And I'll just write the column. Hmm. First column with dear editor, see below. And I'll write the column in email. I actually talked to one of my good friends, a very good New York Times journalist, David Leonhardt. And David said that's he wrote most of the early columns in his career, early in his career actually, as a, in a Yahoo email, even worse. Um, so that helps. I don't know why. Surprisingly easy to delete a draft email is the only thing I would be scared about. Uh, I, yeah. It's never happened, clearly. I, no, it's never happened to me, and it, if it did, it might even be a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, better to bang the thing out. Look, the thing that's interesting is, you know, you have email conversations with people, and I've seen colleagues do this. I spent a year at one of the think tanks, the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and we'd have these long debates by email, and I'd look at the emails that friends had sent me, and I realised if you just put a, an opening paragraph and a closing paragraph, it was a beautifully phrased op-ed. <laughs> and it was in an email that was going to four other people. And um, there's so, you know, so we actually waste a lot of our energy. There's something you're very good at, right? We could spend, you know, 20 minutes hashing it out back and forth over email, or you could just spend the same amount of time banging out 800 words and let a broader audience see it. So email is a very inefficient medium. Hmm. You don't want to try and win the world over one person at a time. How do you manage email? I mean, you must... Badly. Um, do you, have you discovered any tricks to kind of keep on top of the inbox or, yeah. or spend less time do, do, tackling email? Don't answer it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Best predictor of whether someone will write to you is whether you wrote back last time, I guess. Um, um, but it's it's not... Uh, it's reputational challenges with that. I basically don't answer it. So I don't answer it in the first half of the day and then in the second half of the day it's 12 hours old, so who wants to answer it? Right. So your inbox is a bit like your Twitter feed then? It's a disaster. Um, so, um, so yeah, no, no, no hints there at all. Uh, so let me wrap up with a couple of standard questions. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, geez. You know, so one, the immediate thing I think about is, you know, go a bit easier on yourself. 
Except the problem with that advice is if you did go a bit easier on yourself, instead of doing, you know, learning a lot of things and meeting a lot of people and getting ambition and getting fired up, maybe you'd be a bit more middle of the pack. And if that happens, you know, maybe you'd be in a completely different path and one you're not as happy at. Um, so that seems like a bad one. Um, Did you feel you were hard on yourself as a teenager? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you always seem to be having a lot of fun. You were the one that ran no. the uh, SP booking arrangement at school. <laughs> yeah. You were always uh, hanging out with the uh, uh, with the in crowd. You were a good, oh, mate, good, good mate, swimmer and good at that. That, that was only the in crowd compared to you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, so that's so we should of, call that. I can say about most of the rest of my school. Degrees yeah. of out crowd rather <laughs> than anything. Um, uh, no, so, the, uh, you know, the true story of my teenage years was my parents getting divorced when I was, you know, 14 or 15, and then literally just trying to rebuild, being a very different student, and then trying to rebuild my self-esteem through academic achievement. Um, you may not have seen that as much. You certainly wouldn't have seen me, you know, up at 3am studying. Mm. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to pretend I was cool and not working that hard. I was working that hard, and so they wanted to prove to myself I could do something. Um, and then, so the question is, do I go back? And I said to that kid, you know, a 16-year-old is at 3 a.m. trying to remember how many stomachs a cow has. Um, don't bother. Um, it's for you to sit, Andrew. Now, can you name the four and can you name the order? <laughs> I can't, but I do remember this. There's that the omasum, the abomasum, the reticulum, and the rumen. Well done. And Obviously, I those think three they were in done. reverse alphabetical order. Is my memory? I might be wrong. And about there's that. something about so the food goes between two of them, right? It comes in comes the room. down two and three, and then goes back from number three to number two. You might be right. Yeah. Well, and there's chewing the cud. I feel like the taxpayers' money on giving us both <laughs> agricultural <laughs> education may have been slightly wasted up until this moment. Uh, possibly. Um, but you know, I could go back to that kid and I could say, you know, take it easy on yourself. But but why? Um, I learned something. I learned that. You know, I was capable of a bit better. Hmm. Um, so it was a pretty good choice, actually. Um, so, you know, flirt with more girls. Uh, maybe that's my advice. So in general, there's, there's not... You don't look back to, to things that you feel you, you should have done in most cases. Um, there's no doubt I screwed things up, but, um, you know, uh, wonderful... Old Bob Dylan line, there's no success like failure and failure is no success at all. Um, you've got to make a bunch of errors. I made them, sometimes spectacularly, but never fatally. So speaking of those errors, what's uh, something you used to believe but no longer do? So this one's embarrassing to say into a microphone, um, but it's a story I remember well. I don't know if you remember it at all. Uh, you and I... This young blokes, maybe, maybe 15, I'm going to guess year 10, could be year 11, walking from the bus to school. I remember this, yes. So yeah. we're talking 29 years ago now. No, but it's an important moment because it taught me something about how easily you can change your mind. So for your listeners, I should actually tell you the moment. Um, I was doing the thing that 14 or 15-year-old boys did at the time, which is I was bad-mouthing gay men. You know, maybe I was calling the kid in front of me a poofter. I can't remember what it was. And lest your younger readers, listeners, be deeply disgusted, this was, roughly speaking, the norm. Um, 
I'd never thought about the issue. It was just, it's going to socially ostracise a guy because that's what you do when you're 15. And you turned around and you said, why? Why do you care? Um, or some variant of that. Do you remember the terms any better? I, I, I remember it in, in rough, ter- rough terms. Yeah, but it was just like, you know, why? If he were to love another man, what's it to you? I was like, huh. Blimey. It's nothing. It's nothing to me. Let him love whoever he wants. And it was, uh, you know, I never... I mean, it's a dumb thing that dumb kids did. Not do, actually. They rarely do it anymore. Um, And you just ask me for a moment of rationality. And it turns out rationality is a powerful thing. And you're right and I was wrong. And the other amazing part about that was how powerful it was because you changed my mind in a heartbeat. Um, And you were deeply right. But there's two things about that. I mean, the first is just to, I guess, remind people of what social attitudes were like 30 years yes, ago. And I, no. I was at a school event the other day and uh, one of the kids put up their hand and said, what's your view on same-sex marriage? And I just had to preface it by saying, uh, we're not there yet, but let me be clear, if you had asked this question when I was at school, uh, yeah. you would have been teased in the playground for the next three months. Yeah. Um, so we're making some progress on it. But the other is that you're very good at kind of changing your mind and, and going where the evidence goes. In economic jargon, you don't have strong priors about a lot of things. Some things you should have strong strong priors about, though, right? I mean, there should be deeply held beliefs and convictions. Hmm. Um, you know, we all hope that what you just said is... In it, each of us hope that what you just said is true of ourselves. We each hope we can go where the evidence leads us. Um, I think human beings generally, and I include myself in this, are probably terrible at it. We come to view the social sciences and politics the same way we come to view football. We have tribal allegiances and we cheer for our team, right? And if I cheer for the Parramatta Eagles, then, you know, Parramatta Eagles, Eels, I'm sorry, I've been out of Australia a long time, but if I, if I cheer for the Sydney Swans, I'm on firmer ground here because I do, um, that's my team and when they're playing your team, I'm going to scream, even if it makes no difference. I'm going to do it vehemently, and if we win, I'm going to feel like somehow I was vindicated. It's a football team, mind you. And if we lose, I'm going to be disappointed. Um, and too often the social science is like that. And, you know, I think we're all guilty of that. Um, and, you know, this sort of football view of politics and of the world is actually a very powerful one. If you start to see the world this way, you start to see the, the underlying pathologies about the way we argue about a lot of things. And the Jonathan Haidt stuff suggesting that bright people often use uh, their intellect and their time to double down on their existing views yeah. rather than to, to test them, I think, is, is doubly scary. I mean, there's but, this hard question, you know, I'm not going to force you to answer this, but, you know, which of Trump's policies are genuinely good policies that Australia should follow? Well, I mean, the infrastructure uh, stuff makes loads of sense. Uh, You're a pro-infrastructure guy pre-Trump. Right. But if 
uh, he is better able to do it. And that's mm-hmm. that's the point at which many so, Democrats in the United States have been saying there, there there might be might be common ground. Yeah. Not that Obama didn't argue for years that you might yes. want to spend spend right. a bit more money fixing up some of those bridges before they collapse. Yes. Uh, merely that uh, the same ideas might get greater traction with the Republican Congress. Yeah. But that's a poor example because I'm not cha- as you say I'm not changing my mind because yeah. Trump says it. Yeah. No. When are you most happy? When am I most happy? Um, we're not allowed to talk about sex, are we? Sure, you can. <laughs> Look to it. This to is like nearly my twentieth podcast interview, and it is quite quite surprising to me at this moment. Right? I think that I've asked this uh, this this question of uh, you know uh, nearly twenty guests, and none of them have said sex. Might be an unusual twenty. Um, you know, I I like going for. I like I like playing with my kids. I like thinking about things. I like talking to Betsy, my better half. I like going for a run. I like being on the beach. Um, I think I like the mixture of all of them. So in summer, we go and we live on the beach, and I spend the first half of the day working, the second half of the day on the beach, the third half of the day drinking beer. And all three halves are really good. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? That's running. Um, it's uh, it puts me in the right headspace at the beginning of the day. It is itself meditative. I've come to appreciate that. It's challenging. Um, and look, there's a lot of variation across people, which is some people get a huge endorphin high and some don't. I get an enormous one. And I also get this other thing, which is, you know, I think everyone feels like they suffer from ADHD, whether it's diagnosed or not, I have no idea, but we all feel that way. And it creates this deep sense of calm and flow. And I can find flow reasonably easily when I'm working after a good run. Do you have any guilty pleasures? See, the problem with guilty pleasures is you have to feel guilty about it. Um, I'm not religious, so God doesn't tell me to do various things. Um, And neoclassical economics doesn't ask you to feel guilty about many things. Um, Particularly like a rational addiction. That's true. so I don't think I feel guilty. So in sense, some sense this comes back to our early discussion. I have pleasures that other people would feel guilty about, but I don't. I uh, have a lot of people help me in a lot of different ways, and I regard what they're doing as useful and noble and helpful. Um, so I don't feel guilty about it. And finally, what's the, what person or experience has most shaped your view about living an ethical life? Living an ethical life. Wow. Living an ethical life. I love the way you say ethical, like it's uh, well, I'm, yeah. a completely foreign concept we've thrown in here. It's a frame for. It's a frame that's not my standard frame. Um, I think you're just saying. No, well... You talked about animals before. Yeah. And the well-being of animals. Yeah. 
and the well-being of those. Right. So then you're asking this harder question, which is who did that? Um, I think I'll surprise myself with this answer, which is my stepfather George. Um, you know George, hmm. George Parsons. Um, George was not in my life for a long time. Um, I lived at home for maybe three or four years when he lived there, but he was a, in fact, a committed socialist who thought that the most important thing he could do was work to help other people. In his language, the working class mm. and so on, but that sense of social purpose um, was deeply a part of his life, is deeply a part of his life. Um, I've always felt proud of the influence he had on me and I've never been forced to articulate it before. Um, and I think you might have, yeah, just taken me somewhere I didn't know I was going to go. So you will have just affected two people in the world, me and George. Um, it's probably not a very interesting story for other people. Um, but, you know, someone someone wakes you up and says you've got a so social conscience. Um, I think you grew up in, you more than me, grew up in a family that used that language. Um, but it's an important language. I use it quite unselfconsciously with my kids. Um, so we all have to define what ethical is for ourselves. The thing I always remember about George coming over to your place was that he would address kids as, as adults. Like he'd, he'd look, you, look you in the eye and treat you just like an adult. I also remember that as a former rugby league player, I think you, you did play first grade or something like that. Played a little bit of first grade. Yeah. Uh, I remember he once tackled me on a, a, a half-time game we were playing during the... I remember that game. 89-90 uh, grand, grand final, Balmain, Raiders, and um, yeah, I couldn't walk for... Uh, there was a few of us hobbling after hours. that game. It turns out you should not play rugby league after eight beers. <laughs> Important lesson to learn when you're 16. Well, there are many lessons we've discussed today. So, Justin Wolfers, thank you for taking the time to speak on the Good Life podcast today. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. Next week, I'll be back with my parliamentary colleague, Linda Burney, for another conversation about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.